You're listening to the No Name Photo Show. It's not spouse approved. It may or may not be safe for work. We'll see. And now here's your host, Brian Matiash, and me, Sharky James. So, Brian, here we are, episode 13, the unlucky episode. We have Jason Voorhees toppled our episode output. We have Tradecupold our episode output. Tradecupold, you say? Not Jason Voorhees. Popold. Popold. <laughs> Tell us what's on episode 13. I'd be happy to, Sharky. So uh, for this episode, I'm excited for these two topics in particular. Uh, the first one is just for, for all those photographers who they take their their the copyright of their photos very seriously, uh, only to have some, we'll call them halflings, lesser people just kind of unwittingly take their photos and use them for commercial purposes. We have a story about that. And then this a second story is one that you brought up, and it's one that I have, I definitely have my thoughts on. Uh, it's a Petapixel article called Can't You See or The Ethics of Photographing Vulnerable People. So that's what we got on the agenda. Plus, uh, of course, what's on your gear shelf? And what's not here is mom this week. No. No mom. No, we want to thank Nicole Young for joining us last week. Uh, that was a fun time. Listen to episode 12 if you have not already. Absolutely. And you can check out uh, the show notes for that episode and all episodes at nonamephotoshow.com. So Sharky, this first story (laughs) comes from us from DIYphotography.net. The title of the story is Internet Entrepreneur, with the word entrepreneur in quotes, shocked that copyright owner sued him for stealing their work. So Sharky, you take a photo, right? You're a photographer, you take a photo, you know, you spend all the time and money to learn the craft and you get a good photo and you put it out there. And someone else comes along and says, hey, you know what? I found this on Google Images, so I'm just going to use it for my advertisement for my company. What are your thoughts? Are you like, yeah, that's okay. My thoughts are, first of all, they shouldn't be surprised when they get sued for that. I think enough people know by now that photos and other works are copyrighted. They might not know they're copyrighted from the moment you create them, at least here in the United States. But I think enough people have heard of this that they should at least be somewhat concerned. But no one ever thinks they're going to get sued for it. And we've, I think we've all done it at some point, like maybe back in the day when we didn't know better. But like poet Maya Angelou said, she doesn't say anymore because she's been dead a few years. RIP. When you know better, you do better. And that's really important right there. If you know that there is a law, there's copyright laws, and you might. What's the worst case? I always think, what's the worst case scenario? This is just me playing it out. What's the worst case scenario? Oh, somebody who's registered their images with the copyright office might sue me for $150,000 per image per infringement. Right. That's going to be painful. You bring up the, I think, the crux. And just to kind of elaborate some more on this story. So basically what happened was this YouTuber and internet entrepreneur with air quotes, his name is Dan Da Silva. He apparently lifted someone's photo that he found on, even says that he found it on Google Images, and the copyright owner sued him and won. Now, the reason why the story itself is not like, okay, great, this happens probably all the time, but the story was that this guy, Dan Silver actually turned around and he basically took the victim role saying that he was the victim of a malicious photographer. Basically like, oh my God, this guy's like really taking me out to the cleaners, uh, which is insane. But Sharky, here's the thing, and you said it. We, I think as photographers, everyone listening can kind of relate to that's you know my work and, and I want to be fairly compensated for my work if I am in actually interested in the whole commercial side of things. But how many people admit honestly, Sharky, honestly, how many people listening 
who want to enjoy the benefits of copyright protection actually move forward and register their photos with the U.S. And this is obviously for the U.S., but the U.S. Copyright Office. A tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of it. And so what people need to know is here in the U.S., if you're going to get what's called treble damages, which is a lot of money, the $150,000 statutory limit, that's the most you're going to get per image per infringement. Those have to be registered ideally before they're published. If they are published, you can still register them, but you need to get on that like quick. I think there's like a 90 day window or something. I don't know. I'm, I'm confused about this all the darn time, but most people are not going to register it. You can. The, the moment, like I said, the moment you press the shutter or whatever, whether you're Naruto, the monkey or not, you own the copyright. So when you take the picture or create a work, drawing, music, whatever, the moment you create it, it is copyrighted by you. Now, Suing is another thing. If it's not registered, you can sue for actual damages. Which is like pennies to the dollar compared to punitive. Absolutely. Because punitive obviously means punishment, right? It's to go, no, you did a bad thing. It's going to cost you 150 grand. To get that, that's pretty rare. You have to really, really be egregious in your just disdain for the copyright law to be able to be awarded that usually. But actual damages is, let's say... Let's say you would normally charge $300 for the use of a photo in your local, let's say, magazine. Let's say there was a magazine here in Boise, Idaho, where I live, and I shot you know, the mountains or whatever. They found it online. They used it. I didn't register my copyright. If I were to sue them and it wasn't registered, I would only get actual damages. So that might be like 300 bucks, whatever the fair market value for that use would be. That's my understanding. I could be completely wrong. We need to get Resnicki on here. Yeah, Jack Resnicki is, I mean, he was one of my favorite photographers. I actually saw him in New York at Photo Plus. He has a, a lot of knowledge in that field and wrote a book, co-wrote a book on that. With the guy, I can't remember his name right now. So guy, I'm sorry. There's Resnicki and whoever the other guy is. We will link to it, hopefully, in the show notes. But you were saying. No, so what I was saying is that I strongly advocate for, you know, the registering of your photos. For people like we've talked about this in, as part of kind of the mobile photography workflow, how to, and also, you know, CC moving to the cloud. For a lot of photographers who take high volume photos, it may not be totally feasible. The way it works is, and, and uh, true to form, this is a government agency, and, and because of that, the whole registering of photos is still woefully kind of out of date. There is a website, and you can actually upload your photos, but it's, it's something that, for what it should be, for the volume of work being created by people, it is not the most user-friendly, the most kind of intuitive process, but that there's, you know, ignorance is not an excuse and people share their photos all the time. And admittedly for me, I used to be much more militant. I still do register my photos. I register them in batches with the U.S. Copyright Office. There's a whole upload process and you don't need to upload high, you know, full resolution. You only need to upload a small, a low resolution file to be able to identify the photo. And you can do them in batches, which is great. That's what people need to understand. You don't have to do them individually at 30 bucks a pop. The other day, John Harrington, who's a really well-known photographer, written books, etc., photojournalist, covers Washington, D.C. mostly. He said, I believe he does them in batches of like almost 10,000 because beyond that, the system gets just all crazy. So you just need to be able to identify it. It needs to be a big enough thumbnail that you can actually see, okay, this is the actual infringed photo. And and yeah. there you go. So you don't have because it can get out of control. And I've got to I've got to when you get a chance here, when you're done with your talking and me interrupting you, I got to tell you what happened with my copyright ish claim a number of years ago. Absolutely. And just really quickly, what I would say is talking about kind of like bringing the whole registration process to modern times, like 
I never understood why, uh, and as far as I can tell, I, I don't know that it exists, but for instance, Lightroom, let's talk about Lightroom. It has publishing services. It's had publishing services for several years now. You can publish to like SmugMug and Flickr and Facebook and whatnot. Why there hasn't been a copyright module? Because these modules support commerce. You can buy licenses and stuff through the plugin. I actually just bought one yesterday for Lightroom that uh, Nicole told me about that exports presets as LUT files which is a whole separate thing. But my point is they're quite powerful. So I do believe that if the process was made easier or demystified a little bit, people would take advantage of it. I also think that a lot of photographers, they know they should, and they know that they want to register their photos with the U.S. Copyright Office. And again, this is, we're just talking about the U.S. and I'm not as nearly as versed as any other country, but when you go to the copyright, it's gotten better over the years, but still it's like a legitimate concern. So for now, Sharky, though, I do want to tell us about your, copyright story your experience all right first we want to say i don't know if we mentioned it copyright.gov is where you can go do that oh and i think that the guy i'm not sure exactly that he lost the copyright suit i don't think it actually went to trial and everything i think he just settled but it was like three thousand dollars he had to pay or no it went to court but they reached a settlement the photographer took twenty seven thousand dollars granted each penalty is up to one hundred fifty thousand. they settled for twenty seven thousand plus the guy uh, the entrepreneur air quotes had to pay about ten thousand in legal fees so that's pushing forty thousand dollars for what is a very very foolish especially if you're going to call yourself an entrepreneur, a business person, uh, odds are you are trying to make money selling some sort of product, digital or physical. Like you should know better. So, so Sharky, go ahead. The funny thing is you could make thousands of dollars for a completely stupid, out of focus photo that someone stole. So how great is that? It doesn't even have to be a great photo that someone steals. Well, I know that you said that copyright is kind of intrinsic at the point of creation. So whoever is holding the camera and presses the button, whoever exposes that photo, they own the copyright. And I know for like the two weddings that I photographed and then the handful of weddings that I've assisted on, in both cases, if you're smart, the lead photographer, the primary photographer has a contract with whoever's assisting. And for me, in both cases, there was a clause that says that whoever the assistant is, and when I was assistant, that was me, basically abdicates the copyright automatically of every single photo they expose to the lead. So even if it's an assistant who took the photo, I own that photo. It's mine. I credit it. You for you're being paid an hourly rate. It's always a good idea to put things in writing to determine who owns what. We did that with here with the show. It's just important to get it out of the way. Yes. Anyhow, back to my story, which I didn't even get to, but here we go. Uh, I talked about this a number of years ago on the Petapixel Photography Podcast. Boy, it took me a while to get the plug in there. This was back, I'm not going to say where, but it was in Arizona, a small town in Arizona I moved to. They call them bedroom communities, right? So you can move to a larger city or you can move out in the sticks a little bit. And so I photographed the town the local golf course, et cetera, just on my own, just when I moved up there. And this was about 2006, a number of years later. And this is so back then I wasn't with the newspaper, the larger newspaper. I started at the smaller one, then went to the larger one. A number of years later, there was this guy in the next town over who was an attorney of all things, ironically. And he was running for superior court judge of that area, whatever. I go on his website because I had to do that just in the course of my work. I, I was doing a little bit of research. And I found a photo that looked oddly like one I had taken a few years earlier. I just, I have a weird memory. I, I know which photos I shot. I knew how it was exposed. It was my old Canon 40D. I knew what that look was. I contacted him and I'm like, okay, here's the thing. You probably don't know much about copyright law. You're a family and whatever attorney. You're running for the local superior court judgeship. I work for the local newspaper. That right there is a story. 
But here's the deal. And I didn't threaten him or anything. I just like laid it out for him. Here's the deal. You infringed on my copyright. So I'm giving you three choices. One, we're going to federal court. And by the way, it wasn't registered federally. But I'm like, we're going to go to federal court. Nice. (laughs) So, and that's going to cost you up to $150,000. Option number two was... I can't remember what option number two was, but I gave him a couple of options. One was, uh, this was years ago and I'm an old man. So option one was, uh, we're going to court. It could be up to 150,000 bucks. Option number two was, give me $300 because this is what I would have charged you if you were to say, hey, I I really want that photo because I want to put that on my website. And it was prominent on his website. It was like, you know, the header and he would put his graphic on top of it, not his copyright, et cetera. But just, you know, put his in for whatever for local superior court judge, blah, blah, blah. And so that was the other option. 300 bucks, because that's what I would charge you. Or if you give any pushback, the price triples. So you either give me $300 because that's what you owe me, or we're going to court or any pushback and the price starts going up from there. And, th- and then the $300 is no longer on the table. And so what happened? I had $300 in my account later that afternoon. Okay. Well, listen, you know, I think that I think everything is, I guess, circumstantial in the way that it's based on you you reached out to him. If I I look at it as partly, well, especially if you didn't protect the photo itself, but that's not an excuse for someone to be able to use it, especially commercially, especially in that capacity, which is ironically just so funny. The problem with this guy is that the the Dan Da Silva is that he actually, I'll, I'll read you a quote from him, it says, this is Dan Da Silva, to put into context, the reason I was sued was because I used a picture that I found on Google Images. Now, I should have known better. Yes, in my position, I should have known better. But again, I never really thought that there are malicious people out there that maliciously put pictures on the internet. So grammar aside, phrasing aside, no one... <laughs> The photographers who are sharing their photos, they're not doing it with malicious intent. What he is saying is that he's surprised that there are photographers. He's using the word malicious, which is completely you know ridiculous. But there are photographers who are willing, kind of like you, who are. Uh, and in fact, you can argue that this photographer, I don't know the specifics here. You at least had the, the I don't want, you, you reached out first and you said, hey, here are the options. But in actuality, if you did have your work registered, so that's a feather in your cap, you can send your cease and desist immediately and then take it from there. So the fact that this guy seems incredulous that a photographer actually exercised their rights to to enforce their copyright is is ridiculous. It's not even that. I watched... So he he put a video on YouTube, right? Right. I think if I recall, and I watched this a few days ago, so tell you about my memory, selective... A few days ago when I watched this, he said he was implying that this guy put photos online for the purpose of hoping like a honeypot, hoping that people would steal them so he could then sue people for it. And I don't know where he got that information from. There are people that do that, though. It's a little slimy, but that's a legitimate business model. There are people that go do shoots. They put them online, hope that people steal them, and then they shake them down. Well, I mean, that's a whole other topic. It is a whole other topic. It's an interesting one because... That's kind of it. Sounds like uh, uh, patent trolls, you know, or squatters who who sit on domain names, like they gobble up domain names and stuff. I don't necessarily know that I. I don't necessarily 
think that I agree with that because you want to take photos that are visually striking, right? You're like, that's what we do. And you want to share them because, and I genuinely believe that the nature, the life cycle of a photograph ends with the photo being shared. So if it's a really visually compelling photo, you might want to look into protecting it before you publish. I think when you were talking about the whole 90 day thing, I think that's kind of like the amount of time you have. If a photo is shared online, anywhere, anywhere that's public, it's published, it's considered published, it's available there. And so I think there is a certain kind of statute of limitations or like, you know, a window where you can retroactively protect it. There are times where you put something out that's like breaking news and you just simply don't have the time to register. So I think there is some stuff. But anyway, this before you get to what you're going to say, this illustrates how confusing this is. True. I report on this and I'm a photographer and, you know, was a photojournalist and you're a photographer and we still don't 100 percent know what the deal is. It's crazy. It needs to be easier. It needs to be explained a lot better. And it's not. And I loved your idea of going from Lightroom into copyright registration with the government. That makes sense. They need to do that. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot that needs to be done with government. But in terms of like our copyright stuff, I I do wish and I don't know what the roadblock is, but I would love to see some sort of like an application you can download and install or put it through Lightroom or or through wherever, kind of like a ROSE system, R-O-E-S, where those are systems that if you want to print let's say like Bay Photo, you know, the you can websites can tap into their printing system. So here, if you can tap into the copyright office, I don't know, I think that'd be cool. But uh, Sharky, if you don't have anything else to say about it, we could probably do a whole show about copyright infringement and how much more money. Like, for instance, if you put your copyright on the photo, like you actually say copyright Brian Matias and someone removes that, that's called copyright management tampering. You can get more money for that. There's just, it's so deep. There's just so much to know about it, but we'll cover it on a different day. Absolutely. Probably. What's number two topic? All right. So this one, like I said in the intro, you brought this up and I really like it. This article first appeared on Petapixel and it's written by someone named Simon Sharp. Now, and again, this this will be linked in the show notes at nonamephotoshow.com slash episode 013 for 13. He shared these photos by another photographer and his what what he's the the crux of the article is whether or not a photographer should refrain from taking certain photos of people who we can i guess call vulnerable or in an kind of like a compromised or compromising situation in life so sharky let, why don't you talk a little bit about that this is a minefield because I don't think there's any hard and fast rules. If you ask a photojournalist, they'll say, nope, absolutely. I can I can shoot whatever. I can share whatever. As long as it's in public, that's the law, at least here in the United States. I don't know about elsewhere. Obviously, it's different around the world. Sharky, why don't you talk about then what in what your interpretation is of kind of so people can visualize or at least have an idea of a vulnerable person, vulnerable people. It runs the spectrum from, and I can give you an example, from somebody, I photographed people who were under arrest. I've photographed people who were injured in an accident. I've photographed people that maybe had disabilities and other people would say, well, they're vulnerable. They're not giving you their consent. Well, you're in America, of course, if you're in public, anyone can photograph you. You can post those photos online. If you want to sell them, that's a whole different matter. You need a model release. But when I was a photojournalist, I could photograph anyone I wanted to in public or anywhere I had access to, you know, unless it's, you know, in their house or whatever, it's their rules. But you have to use your common sense. The public has a right to know. So there's, I don't know, it's just, it's so complicated. You don't want to cause any harm, but people can make the case, well, let's say in in wartime or in war zones, 
You shouldn't photograph people who are bleeding, people who are dying. People. Well, if you didn't ever photograph any of that, people wouldn't know what that looked like and they wouldn't be able to make form an opinion on the merits of this war or whatever. If everything was all pretty and sanitized, then it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. It doesn't really hit home. There's that famous photograph. I think it was in, it might've been Turkey or I don't know, that little kid that was in the back of the ambulance and his head was bandaged, I believe, and he was all bloody and then there's the other photo of that little kid who was on the beach face down, dead, you know, in the sand, in the water. Mm-hmm. He wasn't vulnerable because he had already passed on, but he, he has parents, he has relatives, and that kid is known. Do you photograph it? Do you not photograph it? I argue that as hard as it is to look at, you do because of what I said. You have to know truths in life, right? These things have to be photographed, even the vulnerable, but you have to use your common sense. You ha- I don't know. It's just, I err on the side of you photograph it. You figure it out later. Yeah. And that's and then in, in, in photojournalism, that's what you do. You always have the option later to not run a photo, but if you don't take it, it doesn't exist. You don't have that option. Absolutely. And, and so I believe in the intent should drive what you do with the photo. First of all, I uh, this is a, this is a very tough topic. So let's take a different example, something that I think a lot more of our audience can relate to. Let's say you're walking in Portland uh, or in New York City, and both places have a decent amount of, of homeless people. You know, you're walking around Central Park, or you're walking around the waterfront of downtown Portland, where there are plenty of homeless people who are either just like, you know, kind of sitting there in various states of care, or they're sleeping, you know, under a sleeping bag on some car border or whatever. For me, there's only one way that I would allow myself or give myself the permission to photograph them. And that is if I take it upon myself to at least introduce myself to the person and get context. And this is kind of like why I love the humans of New York. It's a photographer who just, he's spent years photographing the citizens of New York City. And actually he just partnered with Facebook to to launch Humans of New York, the series, so that they actually turned it into a, a video series that you can watch. Brandon Stanton is his name. Brandon Stanton, yes. Some of the photos are anonymized, meaning they don't have that he he composed it so that their heads are out of frame, but there's always a story behind it. So in those situations, and in in this case of um, with a homeless person or whoever it is, you know, someone who's uh, it, it just like the article says vulnerable. If you get to know them, you get the permission. And in my case, I would also compensate them, you know, even a couple of bucks or something. You give them free photography advice. Here's your tip. <laughs> No, I would, I would, I, I mean, these are the things where I, and I would just tell them, Hey, listen, because otherwise let's, let's take it the other side, same exact subject. It's the homeless person, but you do, you walk up and you, you sneakily take your shot. What the hell are you going to do with that photo? Like, are you going to post it on, on, on Instagram? Like it's, it's not the kind of thing you just share. You, t- In my opinion, you would take that photo because there is a story, kind of like what you were saying with war. You want to help people form opinions about a certain subject in a documentary way. And so going back to the article, the Petapixel article, one of the, the points that the author Simon Sharp was making was like, you can see several photos where it's like there's a, a woman, a Syrian Kurdish woman and her baby. So she's holding her baby and you can see she's holding her hand up. She's turning and she's holding her hand up in that kind of universal like stop this, please. And so, you know, there, I think that's where we're at that that crossroad, Sharky. Like, what do you do? Here's my thinking on this. All right. Nobody wants to be photographed in a vulnerable position, or let's just say no one wants to be photographed at a bad moment in their life. However, you know, refugees, that sort of thing. If these photographs will then help, you know, make things better for them and their cause, I would argue it's worth that 
discomfort and I don't want to say lack of dignity, but it could be that as well. Absolutely. The greater cause of helping them improve their situation. No one wants to be photographed, like I said, when something bad is happening. But I think if you ask them later, you know, okay, here's here's the outcome. Because of this, people saw this photo. It changed their mind. You now got funding. A country took you in and other refugees, and you had to suffer the momentary discomfort or lack of dignity to then not only help you and your kids, but your people. So Christians would say that's a Christ-like thing to do. Christ himself they would say, we don't usually get into into religion, but that's a really good example, I think, of not just a Christ-like thing to do, but Christ, you know, dying on the cross for your, you know, his dignity was sacrificed for the greater good of humanity, you know, if you believe that, et cetera. And that's up to you. We're not a Christian show. We're not not a Christian show. Just saying. So, you know what I'm saying? So if those photos of this woman putting her hand out, like, no, don't take the picture, actually improves the situation for them. That's not something she's thinking about in the moment. She's just thinking, my baby's crying. You know, bad things are happening right now. Just please stop, take photos. It's a, it's a, this is a very, very tough. And this is part of the reason why I love this topic and that we get an opportunity to talk about it here is that I think it's also contextual in terms of is the photographer, I don't know the photographer, I don't know what the, I didn't look too much into him, so I'm not making any sort of judgments. And again, we're talking about the photographer who's referenced in this article that you can view in the show notes, no name photoshow.com. But if the photographer is one who's just kind of like running and gunning, just kind of like, you know, walking here and there, taking quick photos, walking away. That to me is, I think part of the, the photographer's responsibility in these situations is also not just to be able to tell the story visually, but to also be able to really embed themselves in the situation, get to know what's going on. And I'll explain to you why I have, the, it's not just something I'm saying, this is something I have actual practical experience in. So I've been a workshop leader with an organization that was founded by my good buddy, Colby Brown, called The Giving Lens. And the premise is these workshops are not like these, like, you know, really nice, they go to, you know, like these, these like, um, you're not going to the Grand Tetons. You're not going to the Grand Tetons. You're going to like third world countries. You're partnering with NGOs, which are non-government organizations. You're embedding yourself in the community and into the culture. So twice I've led workshops um, going to Nicaragua, to Granada, and there um, I'm not going to do my Beavis and Butthead impression. No, don't. Please don't. Go back 20 years. You know what I'm talking about. All right, go ahead. So when there are portions of the workshop where we, so the, you know, there are people who pay to come on the workshop to learn photography, but also they want to work with the the local organization and the children that we work with. There is a, a segment where we go into the barrios to where, where these kids that we're spending the week with actually live. And I remember after the first trip, I went through about 10 days of this weird kind of like remorse, this like funk. Because I've never, I never had seen poverty like this. Like, so my point is that we kind of work with our workshop students and we explain to them the responsibilities that they have as photographers, that they are not necessarily there to go there and feel pity for these people. You're there more to kind of like, these are fellow humans. And you have the gift of being able to tell their story visually. You know, you don't just walk up into someone's uh, shack and take photos of them. If you want to take a photo, if you see someone that interests you, you walk up to them. And even if, you know, you don't speak Spanish and they speak Spanish, we teach them common phrases, one of which is, can I take your photo in Spanish? But you create a rapport and then you only then, and then once you get kind of that idea that it's okay to take the photo, because they will, tr trust me, if there's a kid or an adult there that doesn't want you taking their photo, they will make it known. So in that case there, what's considered, um, uh, what's the word, physiognomy, 
which is kind of the body language, the characteristics of a person. So when if their shoulders are up or they're, you know, they make certain body language that they don't want to take the photo, read that cue and walk away. You're like, hola, me llamo Brian Matias. And they're like, donde esta Nicolzi? <laughs> Nicole actually has led some of those workshops as well, but she went to Thailand. But that would be very impressive. So <laughs> that, would, that would be a huge blow to my ego. <laughs> <laughs> They're living in the barrio, but somehow they know Nicole Z and I don't know. Have we beaten this dead horse to death? I think motivation is what you're saying counts for a lot. That's a human thing. That's a, you know, how do you, how do you police that? You don't, you can't stop someone from going and photographing the homeless. Look, there's a number of years ago, somebody, a model went and uh, famously did a shoot after a hurricane, whatever it was in Florida or something with people's damaged houses and cars turned upside down. It was like, look at me, I'm in a bikini here in everyone's destructed area and forget you. But I got some cool photos. Right. Exactly. 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 If you're going out because you want to take a photo of a homeless person so you can do some cool texture overlay and composite them into something else just to make a cool photo, that is just, in my opinion, just the most awful thing. If you're going because you want to, you genuinely are interested in that person, take the time to get to know who that person is, even if it's just a few minutes, see if it's okay, do your thing. But otherwise, don't objectify them. What's a homeless person texture overlay? It's like leathery skin out in the sun too no. long. Like, what <laughs> are you talking, talking about? about? Like, creating a composite of like all these different elements with, you know, to me, that's just, that's the wrong thing. Similar to what you said about this bikini clad model who's going out using the devastation around them as a kind of a novelty or a visual shock value. I'm happy you clarified because I, I just had some horrible thoughts of that. That's okay, Sharky. All right. So let's move on. You were done with this topic. We are. All right, Brian, what's on your gear shelf? What's on my gear shelf is actually, and I was thinking about this earlier, like I'm surprised I hadn't selected this previously. It's gone through 13 episodes, but it's called the Capture Clip by Peak Design. Now I've used, I use this, it basically it's a clip that you clip it onto your, if you wear a backpack or, you know, any sort of anything that has a strap, this clips to it. And then there's a, a little plate you screw onto the bottom of your camera and it allows you to slide your camera into that, what's called the Capture Clip. Once it's it, you slide it in, it makes a very satisfying click, and that camera is now hang, you know suspended from your shoulder. So if you're like me, I don't prefer using any sort of neck strap or, or shoulder strap. Kind of like a couple of episodes ago, you talked about um, the Black Rapid R Strap Breathe series. It's awesome. Yeah, and you use that with your shooting. For me, I prefer when I'm walking around outdoor stuff, I don't want any camera dangling around. I want it kind of close to me so this allows it just sits by my shoulder doesn't move and when i need it i press a button i lift it up and i take it out now just two or three days ago peak design they're like super famous for how they launched their products on kickstarter they have some of the most successfully launched products on the platform so they just released version three of this capture clip it's smaller it's thinner but it's still just as strong it's beautiful it's made out it comes in black or this i have the kind of silver very very kind of sleek look i have one of these clips on every single bag that i use period end of story and i I can't say enough about it i use their bags as well i have the everyday messenger and the the everyday backpack both are i I love so yeah this clip if you're like me you don't you want an alternative to using a strap you just want to kind of fasten um your camera to your shoulder uh, or to your belt It, it can also work on a belt or anything like that the peak design capture clip is my choice for this week 
What about you, Sharky? Nice. They're and they're good people over there. They're awesome. They're based out of San Francisco. They are really a very kind of conscious. They have a, a, a socially conscious company and um, not a good corporate ethos. Very exactly, Sharky. And we're not. They work with Trey Ratcliffe. That's how they rose to prominence, right? Arguably, they rose to prominence before that because they they made huge waves with the the capture clip with their slide camera straps. But then the everyday messenger was the collaboration with Trey Ratcliffe. Um, but things went cray cray after that it was just bam everyone knew who they were yeah they went they went gangbusters with that one so so yeah and then they have subsequently released newer products you know the backpack and um various other kind of uh, accessory pouches so awesome did you ask me what was on my gear shelf and i turned it right back around to your shelf no i don't think so so what's on my gear shelf you ask i do i think i heard you whisper over there sharky what's on your gear shelf all right that sounds great anyhow it, I hate it when when companies make things and you have to use proprietary batteries. I mean, there's good reasons for that. But anytime you can use, let's say, double A's, that's a great thing, especially with flashes and such. Charging double A batteries, something we all do like constantly, is a pain. And the reason why it's not ideal is because if you're using just like a regular charger that you get from a big box store or whatever, just a cheapo model, it's charging all those batteries. Let's say you have four of them. You're charging four double A's together. It stops when the first one fills up with its charge. It stops. You want to get a smarter battery charger and they cost a little bit of money, but it'll charge them individual circuits that has. So it'll charge them each individually. You know what I'm saying? So you don't want to put four batteries in your flash and then have it give you less power because they're not all batteries are created equal. They can even be created at the same time and they're going to discharge at different rates. So you want a battery charger that's going to charge each of your batteries as if it was its own thing, as if nothing else mattered. And so a number of years ago, and there's a number of brands out there, I got a charger by Lacrosse Technology. It's the BC1000 Alpha. It's $60 and it's great. So I recommend that as the budget-ish model. There's one for 100 that you can get. Maha Power is another great brand. And you can get it and it charges like eight AA, AAA, C and D batteries, which no one even uses anymore. Who's got C and D batteries? Come on. So that's a hundred dollars. It charges everything individually. It's got different, you know, rapid charging modes, battery conditioning, etc. You want to take care of your batteries. Like David Hobby, strobis.com says batteries like to be charged together, but you also want to charge them individually together too. So if you that's another great tip too. If you're using, try to keep your batteries together. I always try to keep them in sets of four. And if things start getting hinky with them, I might toss all of them. Yep. And that's another thing, too. I have a I have an e-cycle box in my uh, gear closet here, too. And so every once in a while, you take it to wherever the e-cycle place is. Don't just throw batteries and no and other nonsense out in the landfill. You know, you're not going to do this often, but just have a box ready to go. There's a bonus tip right there. Put all your batteries and such, your electronics that are dead in there. And then once a year or so, there'll be an event, usually like in a Walmart parking lot or like some Best Buys and other big box kind of stores will have it where they actually have it in front where you can put your stuff in there in like a little box and then they recycle it for you. So battery chargers, take care of your batteries. Try not to drop them. That's a really bad thing. Don't open them. If you see where, stop using it. I mean, they're they're batteries. Come yeah. on. No, I, I, 
I have that lacrosse charger as well. The, it's a blue, like a two-tone blue and gray, if I remember correctly. But um, And I do the same thing. I, I used to use, when I was using strobes a lot more, I would buy four packs of Aniloop batteries, which are really well-known. You know, they're supposed to hold their charge like for years. But I did exactly what you said, Sharky. I would take a, a little dyno, whatever, label maker, and I would label them like A1, A2, A3, A4, B1, B2. And if one of them, just whatever reason, because that lacrosse charger is really smart if one of them just didn't charge correctly the four are gone and i would buy a new set so you bring a really good points there with batteries battery conditioning now technically you don't have to throw all four of them away because you are charging them separately but it just maybe it's just an old practice it's just like i didn't have a carbon fiber tripod for the longest time because i just felt like the aluminum ones were more sturdy and that was just ridiculous well listen i mean it really depends i want to go too deep into this but you know if we're talking about like uh, nicad batteries you know versus nickel metal hydride batteries versus lithium batteries they have their advantages and their disadvantages they have certain temperaments in terms of how they want to be charged some of them you want to totally like in terms of conditioning you want to discharge it completely and then charge it back up so good one sharky that's actually a good good pick absolutely and i think this was a, a good show if we do say our, so ourselves i do and we do say so right we just did okay cool. i stumbled over it but i did it was like a paradox. <laughs> Whatever. It was All a right. Paris something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sharky. Well, thank you for being you. On behalf of our entire audience, I want to thank you. Sharky, where can people find you? I host the Petapixel Photography Podcast. You can go to petapixel.com slash podcast. Look for it in your favorite podcatcher. Hit the show notes at nonamephotoshow.com. And a lot of podcatchers, you can click the show graphic. It'll flip around. You'll have the show notes there, and they should be clickable. So where can people find you? Well, aside from the Petapixel Podcast, where can people find you on social? They can find me at Lens Shark. So two S's in there. Lens Shark on Facebook, Twitter, and the Instagram the instagram cool and uh for me uh, my website just go to matias.com that's m-a-t-i-a-s-h and on social i'm brian matias everywhere that's b-r-i-a-n-m-a-t-i-a-s-h sharky love you brother let's clap it out let's do it love you too all right here we go one two that's the winner all right later later Thanks so much for listening to the No Name Photo Show. Sharky and I would be thrilled if you would subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using and tell a friend. So how about we do this again next episode? Yeah, let's do that. Mm-hmm.